Hi, I'm Kevin Barrett, doing the radio show that introduced the world to the fearless truth-telling of Dr. Alan Zabrowski, the former head of strategic studies at the U.S. Army War College. If you appreciate this work, please do subscribe to my show. Get early access and free downloads by going to kevinbarrett.substack.com. You can also send a one-time contribution to truthjihad.gmail.com through PayPal. That's truthjihad at gmail.com. Welcome back. This is the second hour of the live version of Truth Jihad Radio. I'm Kevin Barrett, broadcasting live. I've been broadcasting mostly live, at least more than 50-50 live, I think, (laughs) since, uh, boy, how long has it been now? Since 2006, when Jim Fetzer uh, threw me onto his show. He he had to go do something else, so I became Jim Fetzer for an hour. (laughs) And and I've been on uh, all of these crazy alternative networks ever since. And now my favorite one, Revolution.Radio, is providing us with a chance to put out totally free speech, no censorship allowed of any kind. So as long as it's legal, we can say it here on Revolution.Radio, and I really appreciate that. So please do support Revolution.Radio and help keep it going. And, of course, I'm at TruthJihad.com and Substack at KevinBarrett.Substack.com and appreciate people's subscriptions and PayPal gifts to TruthJihad at gmail.com. And if you like hearing people who call it the way they see it, way outside the Overton window of the mainstream media, uh, keep tuning in because, hey, we've got another great guest in this hour. Following up Edward Curtin's impassioned and eloquent uh, discourse on behalf of RFK Jr. and his candidacy, which Ed thinks does have a real possibility of, of transforming America, assuming that it catches on, which it very possibly could, I'll bring on a slightly more cautious, nay, even pessimistic perspective from the most censored man in America, Alan Sobrowski. I think I hear him on the line, so he hasn't been cut out yet. We've had an inordinate number of technical difficulties bringing him on my various shows over the years. It seems like maybe somebody doesn't really want his message to get out. I can't imagine who that might be, uh, <laughs> given Alan's notoriety for you know, having the former head of strategic studies at the U.S. Army War College says Israel did 9-11. That headline went out maybe 10 or 12 years ago, and Alan's notoriety has only increased since, but I, I love having him on, and it's great to have you back. So, hey, Alan, even if you're going to throw cold water over our hopes for RFK Jr. saving the country, um, I'm really glad to be back with you. How are you doing? I'm doing well. Can you hear me? Yeah, you're coming through perfectly for okay. once. I would, like, I would like, first of all, to make a couple of administrative comments. First yeah, of all, go for it. being on at this time is way past my bedtime. And that I did it at your request because a supposedly more elderly person needed to get to sleep struck me as odd. And then I suddenly realized that I'm the most elderly person on the group. So I He's in his, I think, mid to late 70s, but he's still playing basketball. Listen, I'm 81. I still lift weights, but I'm still older. The second thing is that this is a compliment to you, Kevin. Uh, you have been, and I know this from other people, one of my great fans from the time that I started speaking out on this and other issues. 
and I have the greatest and deepest respect for you, and I want everyone to understand that, that uh, I'm going to miss you. Hopefully, we'll continue to talk when you're in Morocco and you come back, but uh, you're one of my great, you're one of my great, great heroes. Well, thanks, Ellen. Yeah, the well, it's totally mutual admiration society. Then, and if you ever get a chance to come to Morocco, you know we are setting up a, a venture uh, that will be bringing influencers, and you're certainly an influencer to Morocco. And you can, you know, learn a little something about the cool Sufi Moroccan heritage and all that sort of thing, while hanging out uh, near the best beach in Africa, if not the world, and giving some talks and things like that. Uh, so, you know, God willing, it would be great to have you come visit us there. I would appreciate that. But but I, I meant that very sincerely. Uh, several people have told me that when I first started talking out on, on 9-11, that you were one of the people who made my views more commonly known. And that without you, I would not have been known. So I wanted to thank you and tell you how much I appreciate you. Well, thanks, Alan. I, I appreciate that. Yeah, I think I think I did break the story. I think I think both you and Alan Hart. I, I broke the story, and then Infowars picked it up, and then you guys became famous. <laughs> <laughs> I think I think infamous is the word, and uh, we became we became poster children for ADL. Yeah, yeah, it's it's all my doing. So you know, you should be throwing rotten fruit at me rather than praising me. I uh, <laughs> I turned you into a, a persecuted scapegoat figure uh, who can hardly talk on the radio without interference, abnormal interference coming through. But so far, you sound great tonight. So maybe they finally gave up. <laughs> I think that's that's slight possible. I think at this point, they may have considered it's a swan song. Although there is a little bit of a of a twitch that you might want to be aware of. Um, I I think I mentioned to you when we talked earlier today that I was going to Michigan next week. Yeah, you're giving a talk in... Uh, yeah, to give an invited talk in my hometown, Lansing, Michigan. Well, just a little, one of the suburbs of Lansing, Michigan. State capital, all the rest of this. There was an interesting... Uh, I'm not quite sure what one describes it as. I received, I got the invitation back in November. Guy invited me there and he said, you know, I, I, we can't give you much of an honorarium. And I said, I don't want one. And he was sort of like shocked. And he said, why? I said, it's my hometown, Lansing. I haven't been there in 40 years. You're going to bring me back. I'm going home. That's it. You take care of me in my home. That's it. That's the end of it. Well, that was fine. We got all everything deal. The arrangement was set up for the uh, talk on the uh, 29th of April. And we talked a couple of times in between and exchanged emails, and that was the end of it. And then several weeks ago, in, in early March, I got an email ostensibly from him saying, you know, you're... you're the, Allegations of your anti-Semitism have become very difficult here. It's, it, this is a business group. And we're going to have to disinvite you. He said, I hate it, but I have to do it. And I sent him back an email a couple of days later saying, look, I regret it. I understand it. Not the first time this has happened. 
I mean, the allegations are utterly spurious unless you assume anti-Semitism is criticism of Israel, in which case I'm guilty. But in the classic sense, I'm not. And I didn't get a response from him and I didn't expect one. And a few days ago, literally, I got an email from a contact, I, I, sort of a Facebook friend. I think I met him once before years ago in Western Michigan. And he said, I'm really looking forward to your talk on the 29th. And I looked at that and I thought, that's strange. He said, he said, I just got the last emailing from the, from the people organizing this and it looks like it's going to be a great session. And so I stopped and I sent him a very, uh, neutral vanilla email. I'm glad which one, which session are you going to be there for? And he said, oh, he said, I'm going to be there for the main session on Saturday, 10 to 12. So I have not contacted the organizer, but it is pretty clear that two things happened. One is that the email disinviting me for anti-Semitism did not originate with him and it was not sent by him. Wow. And that second, that's pretty devious. And second, my response to him saying that I understood, I regretted it, never got to him. Wow. They're, they're hacking into people's emails, huh? No shit. Wow. Well, if you have a phone number, you can talk to the guy. I'm, listen, I'm going to, I'm, I'm going to call him tomorrow morning. I don't think he's going to be listening to this, but if he is, he know he'll get a heads up on it. I'm not going to tell him the details until I meet him on Thursday when he picks me up at the airport in Detroit. But he needs to know what happens on this. But are, are you sure that, you know, I would imagine that from what you said, it sounds like there could be a possibility that the the guy that emailed you to cancel the event might, it might, he might actually have done that, but there might be somebody else involved with the group that either didn't get the word or is continuing with no, the event because no, they disagree. No, no, it, 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 it's very, I mean, the whole thing is still going forward. There are oh, okay. announcements, the room is reserved at the hotel, all huh. the rest of the stuff, everything is done. All right, so are you sure that the guy who wrote to you canceling the event, though, you're, you're sure that he didn't write that email? Uh, if he had written the email, this other guy would not have gotten the announcement that the, that the, that the event was still on. It's, you know, these, these kinds of mysteries and conundrums seem to plague those of us who go up against the $100 million a year ADL. <laughs> yeah, you know, I've, I've got that. I've got, well, you know, by deception shall we wage war, you know? Yeah, yeah. Well, actually, you know, that, that, should be used to publicize your talk. I mean, the story that you just told me, maybe I can actually write that up. And if somebody could, you know, push that around, especially in, in Lansing, that might help you get a crowd out to see you because 
it would be really interesting to go see some guy who's got enemies who are able to hack into emails like that and screw around with his attempts to speak. I would, I would, I would suggest not doing it until I get the chance to talk to the guy. Okay. Yeah, I'll, I'll hold off on that until yeah, we get yeah, a confirmation. Yeah. And we, I, we, think, I, mean, yeah. I think that th- this guy, I've only, I have only talked to him twice on the phone. Greek American, Greek Orthodox, nice guy, really decent American, you know, solid, solid conservative stuff that we like to have. And I don't think he's aware of the extent of this, but I want to tell him personally face to face rather than give him a fail complete with information coming over the internet saying, look what's happening. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You, you, you should talk to him directly. And so before anything, anybody writes anything about this, uh, you should clarify what's going on with that guy. But the basic principle here, Alan, that I've discovered over the years, it didn't take me too long to discover this actually, is that you got to use that jujitsu principle. Uh, uh, did, did I say jujitsu? You're supposed to say jiu or something like that, but I think I mm-hmm. pronounced it wrong. Uh, in any case, you, you use that, uh, that judo principle of the aggressor's strength and attack using it against them, the attacker. And so when they mm-hmm. try to shut you down, then you scream, hey, look, this gigantic entity is trying to shut me down. I must have something interesting to say. And it becomes a, it starts a little scandal and people say, wow, why, why are they trying to shut this guy down? And before you know it, you have a big crowd. I mean, that happened to me over and over. In 2006, I was drawing pretty big crowds because I had a de facto PR agent named Steve Ness, who was a state legislator who was stalking me. And so every time I did anything, I could guarantee that he would put out a, he'd call a press conference, he'd put out a press release, he'd get the entire Wisconsin media and sometimes the national media to write up a big story about whatever terrible thing he said that I was about to do, such as holding an event at this university or at that place. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. hundreds of people would show up, like UW Oshkosh. They sold out, there was a line of tickets to to get tickets to see me that was like, it looked like the Rolling Stones were coming to town. Because (laughs) all thanks to Steve Ness, because he he actually got, there was a a right-wing Christian group, a Christian Zionist group that did a pray-in against me. And, and that publicity stunt then, you know, was, was between that and his press release and all of that. It, uh, it was great. And so this, this guy, he stalked me like that, whipping up huge crowds for me for the better part of a year. And it was the better part. <laughs> and I, I even, I still wonder if he might have been a closet truther who was, you know, play acting the whole time as a big false flag to try to help me send that message. And I'm pretty sure that's not the case because I actually know people who know him now. My friend Rolf, who was then my campaign manager in 2008, is he knows NASA's, uh, uh, whatever he's called, the, the handler, his, his, uh, uh, speaker, whatever he is. And so those, anyway, yeah, it's, it turns out he was actually sincere. He was, you know, he was sincerely persecuting me and providing me with invaluable publicity. So whenever they try to shut you down, you know, it's, it's take advantage of it. It is good. By the way, I just noticed your picture. Is that a cat in the picture? Oh, my, yeah, that's my Skype, uh, picture. I have that picture of Muse the cat when he was a kitten. Uh, I've never changed uh, that, but yeah, Muse the cat, by the way, just made a new cat video. I, you know, I'm I'm a I'm a cat I'm a I'm a cat lover from way back, so that's you just you just went up about five more points. Well, yeah, you, you've actually given points. me some advice about like when Muse first showed up as a stray, mm-hmm. scrawny, flea bitten uh, kitty on the doorstep. Yep. Uh, yep. and, and we took him in and I remember you gave me some good advice about him. He, you know, there was, there were various cat issues that came up and, and I remember you, uh, you gave me some pretty good advice about that, but yeah, he's, he's done a bunch of cat videos. Like we've been threatening 
I'm good on cats, not good on women. Basically, <laughs> out. Cat, yeah, cats are, are a little bit simpler, <laughs> although they're not as simple as you might think. Uh, but yeah, he's, he's but been... cats, cats, cats are women. <laughs> I better keep my mouth shut here. <laughs> yeah, my, my wife is actually right here in the room with me. Uh, so you, you should be careful what you say, Alan. Uh, she might okay. give you a hard time. So anyway, okay. yeah, yeah. So, so let, let me yeah. let me let me give you my basic take on on RFK Jr. Okay, go for it. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if he saves the country. It doesn't. No, it, it, his positions don't matter. Um, the the DNC will never let him be a nominee. The DNC made it absolutely clear in 2016. Bernie Sanders had won the nomination. They wanted Hillary. Hillary got it. In 2020, when they went through their primaries, and the Iowa primaries were just as, as shitty as anything else you can imagine. I mean, the, the worst and the least admirable of any candidate was Joe Biden hiding in his basement. Didn't matter. They changed. They changed the the rules on the on the debates as as one person said what's qualifying for the debate and it was whatever hiller whatever tulsa gabbard had plus one so she would be excluded yeah i remember that once once she knocked once she knocked kamala harris out that was the end of it uh why should one expect 2024 to be any different Whoever the DNC picks, I can assure you it's not going to be RFK Jr. It doesn't matter if it's Biden. It doesn't matter if Gavin Newsom has been eased into the vice presidency in advance and it's just being pushed up. It's not going to be RFK Jr. Don't worry about it. He can make some nice talks. He can make some nice comments. But even that, whether he has the nomination or not, the election doesn't matter. You know, a definition of insanity, one of many definitions of insanity other than what the United States is going to create for itself, is doing the same thing over and over and expecting a different outcome. The Democrats stole the 2018 election. They stole the 2020 election. They stole the 2022 elections. Why should we expect 2024 to be any different? If we have them, we shouldn't. Well, the, the silver lining in that dark cloud is that it makes my decision to relocate to Morocco look good. <laughs> it, makes, it makes your decision to relocate to Morocco look very good. On the other hand, can I, can I come along as your, as your gunman and, and litter bear? Yeah, we'll, we'll try and work something out. We'll, we'll try to get you over there. Uh, no, but, but I'm, I'm very serious. I mean, it's, when you look at this, um, I think that one of the most sophisticated assessments of the 2020 election was 2,000 mules. The one that Denise D'Souza did and uh, True the Vote did. Yeah, I, I saw that. And it certainly and, made a better case than the mainstream would have you believe when they just keep repeating over and over, you know, the election conspiracy theories are lies. You know, they just repeat their mantra over and over without going to, into any oh, of the details. I looked at it methodologically. It was excellent. I got a couple of minor quibbles on it, but I think basically 
I think my my quibbles would have increased their their argument, not decreased it. I think that they were far too conservative in their assessment. All that did, and it got virtually no national play. All it did was tell the Democrats how they had to clean up their act to do it better in 2022, and they did. And even if they hadn't, with the courts that we have today, this this patchwork quilt of Democrat and Republican courts out there, there's absolutely no chance that any significant court will ever address this. And I think this this be, this was absolutely clear, and it should have been. <clears throat> excuse me. I told you I've got a slight cough, and I do. Um, I think that was absolutely clear in December of 2020 when Texas filed a lawsuit on the 2020 election. Now, if you read the Constitution, if there was ever anything that the Supreme Court was intended to deal with, it was disputes among the states. The Texas lawsuit ended up with having, I guess, almost 20 other states join in with it. And I I don't remember the exact numbers. And about 20 on the other side. So you ended up with about 20 odd states saying the election was, was a fraud and 20 odd states opposing them. That's something that the Supreme Court was designed to deal with. You know, disputes among the states. And it, and, it, and it took a pass. It wouldn't do it. Why do you think that was? Political reality. They, they didn't think they could do it and survive as, a, as an institution. How, how does concern, the Supreme Court not survive as an institution? There was a conservative majority of six to three. And if they had looked at that, if they had actually looked at the Texas lawsuit, and it was very simple. I read it. They had looked at that. There is the only way they could have ruled was in favor of Texas, which was to invalidate Biden's election. And they wouldn't do it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I there mean, is a, a presumption uh, going back quite a quite a while to, you know, once the ostensible results have been supposedly you know, announced by the media and uh, become, uh, you know, a, a kind of consensus reality that nobody is ever allowed to question the consensus reality, no matter how obviously false or shaky it is. Well, the, the, but the Supreme Court is in a very unique position. And, I mean, I know, not, I don't know her well, but I know Amy Comey, Barrett. She was one of my undergraduates at Rhodes College. So how, how did she vote on that one? She voted to not, I, I don't know. I don't know. I, I've seen the public vote on not, not to hear it has never been announced. And I don't, I don't know. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Hmm. All yeah. I know is that there were six conservatives, three liberals, and the court decided not to hear it. 
Okay, Ellen. Well, you know, taking this back to the big picture and to the prospect of RFK Jr.'s chances, uh, it, it occurs to me that election rigging and you know tinkering with election results is probably far more common. It probably happens a lot more than even conspiracy theorists like us are aware of, because the stakes are so high. So there's this huge incentive for people to you know, pull uh, levers uh, fraudulently or to, you know, do whatever it takes to try to get their guy in. And that's why we have, you know, political assassinations all over the place in this country, among uh, other sorts of hijinks. And, you know, you have this bizarre situation where you have a kind of a pathocracy, psychopaths are running the show, and then they have a kind of a PR flack agency, namely the mainstream media, putting out this uh, fluffy puppy sort of uh, third grade, you know, pablum, you know, baby talk scenario to hoodwink people into believing that we're living in this democracy where we're replaced by the rules. So I'm, I'm with you on that, but it, it does seem to me that the stolen elections are generally stolen when they're close enough to steal. Like this Biden versus Trump thing. I don't buy these claims that, you know, Trump won by a landslide. Nobody would ever vote for Biden who hid in his basement or anything like that. No, there was a huge, a lot of people really hate Trump, a huge number of people, especially in the very populated urban areas and things like that. And I think it was really close. That's why 2000 Mules actually makes a case that it's possible that that particular type of fraud could have swung the election. Uh, but it's, this is again, because it's pretty close, but when we look at something like uh, RFK Jr., Bernie Sanders, what have you, yeah, they could steal it if it were close. But if you have a situation like RFK Sr. had in 1968, where he just swept to victory in California and South Dakota, and you know he was obviously going to win big, they couldn't do anything about that other than kill him. And so it seems to me that the kind of scenario that uh, Ed Curtin was talking about in the first hour in which people are so fed up with the divisiveness and the cynicism and the politics as usual that they start blatantly disobeying the mainstream media's orders in the same way they disobeyed orders and, and voted for Trump, they start glomming on to RFK Jr. in a big way that that could create a scenario that would give him a fraud-proof uh, plurality in the primaries and or general election. And so why is that not possible? Well, I think I think it's not possible for exactly the same reason that the that the the Democrat establishment in 2020 managed to freeze out everyone except Biden at the end of the administration, at the end of the process. I mean, he was he was no one's favorite. He was absolutely no one's favorite until you got. Hello, Alan. You just cut out. Pardon me? Oh, sorry. You, you cut out for a moment. I hope that's not our, our, okay. our friends you, making themselves known. He was no one's favorite until they got into South Carolina. Right, um, but, but, but the, the black voters in South I mean, Carolina but, love but, it. But the, the, the point is, I mean, the, the idea that, I mean, who is backing RFK Jr.? No one. Well, same, same as his father when he started in 68. Pardon me? Uh, when RFK Sr. launched his campaign in 1968, nobody thought he had a chance and he was polling like low civil That's digits. That's not true. That's not no? true. Really? That's, that, is ab that is absolutely not true. 
he was building explicitly on his dead brother's legacy, and he had been attorney general in that administration. The idea that he was just an outsider, just coming out and and pulling in votes and support, not true. Well, not no, he, true. but, but I, he, the Democratic establishment was totally against him, and the media was totally against him, and he was not polling well when he when he launched. It, it, the media was not totally. The media was his big supporter. I was there. I, I was alive then. I was watching it. The, Are you sure that the media I, didn't, I just, didn't turn I, into I a supporter just, after, as as the campaign progressed in the same way? I had just, I had just yeah. gotten back from Vietnam, and the media was, was – I mean, RFK Jr., RFK Sr. at that time was the, the media's dream boy. Well, I was too, too young to be uh, – had to have reliable memories of that time. But in reconstructing the history from what I've read and stuff – it seemed to me that his candidacy really picked up a lot of steam from a, a fairly modest beginning where it was far from obvious that he was going to win the nomination. In fact, I think when he, when he threw in his hat in the ring, uh, Johnson was still planning to be the nominee. But then, uh, he, somewhat after that, Johnson pulled out. In, in any case, though, that what I, in Ed Curtin's article, he, uh, did, you know, make that comparison between RFK Sr.'s campaign in 68 and RFK Jr.'s uh, for 24. But the uh, in my article, I also discussed the way that public opinion and then the media to some extent got turned around when JFK gave his uh, peace speech at American University and pushed through the nuclear freeze uh, the, or the test ban. That test ban treaty was massively opposed by everybody, public opinion, certainly the media and the entire establishment, especially the defense, military, and strategic establishment were rapidly against it. And Kennedy was basically the lone voice pushing it. And then the Russians loved it, of course. The Ru- Russia like endlessly rebroadcasted it, reprinted it, and spread it everywhere throughout Russia. But then the uh, American people started to buy into it little by little. And then a couple of weeks before his death, it finally got signed after he had completely turned around first public opinion and then parts of the media and then more of the media and then more of the politicians. And then finally he got the votes he needed. Now, the, the experts in the deep state still didn't agree with him and some of them ended up killing him. But uh, that, that transformation in public opinion that then transforms part of and then more and more of the media and then the political landscape. That's the sort of scenario that Ed Curtin and I, to some extent, are imagining is not an impossibility for RFK Jr. <laughs> you better tell the DNC. Well, the DNC is, again, the, the, as I recall, Alan, the, you know, the DNC is the same kind of, what, what should we, not Gestapo wouldn't be the right word, maybe the the uh, common turn or whatever the you know the, the senior party leadership that look, tries look yeah. Kevin Kevin the DNC is not going to permit something like something or someone like RFK Jr. ever to be the nominee. Mm-hmm. Well, they, they changed their rules to try to stop that as because the party be, fell they, into the hands of they the voters. Changed, they, yeah. The DNC changed the rules on the primary by the week to make sure that someone like Tulsi Gabbard would never get on the stage again. Yeah. They are perfectly willing and able to change the rules by the week if necessary to make sure that RFK Jr. 
never gets the delegates to be anywhere. As I recall, there's a whole study of how there was a transformation in the party after the sort of, was it the McGovern and Carter eras? And then I think in the 80s and, and into the 90s, into the Clinton era, the honchos, the big money people who bankroll these candidates and try to control the party, the, you know, the common turn, those people decided that they were going to get, you know, they were going to change the rules so that you couldn't have, uh, you know, the people anointing some popular candidate that the establishment didn't like, as had happened a number of times with RFK, Eugene McCarthy, and uh, others, you know, people like Bernie Sanders today, and indeed RFK yeah. Jr. So, yeah, you're right. That, the, that, that, yeah. I, th- I think that that's, that's very possible, but the net effect of it is that RFK Jr. has no chance at all. None. Well, it's... Only, uh, only, if, you're, only if you're sitting there with a the hookah and spending a lot of time inhaling, can you believe that? Well, I, I just pretend to know what's, I don't know what's possible, what isn't, but history does have examples like the example of JFK and the test ban treaty in which these huge changes kind of happened uh, fairly quickly and somewhat mysteriously. So I, I'm not you know, going to rule anything out. You know what the big difference is? The big difference in, our, in terms of our country's politics was a pair of Supreme Court decisions, Citizen United, and I'm, I'm blanking out on the second one, uh, the net effect of which was basically allow unlimited money from unlimited sources to unlimited candidates, period. So that billionaires anywhere in this world literally can contribute to any candidate they want within the United States. And once that happened, there was a comment by Sheldon Adelson, you know, who's you understand is first he's dead and second, he wasn't one of my favorites even when he was alive. Well, maybe he's listening. If he's listening, he can call in from hell. Uh, well, so. you know, I, I don't think that they have they have good, good cell phone connections down there. But he made a comment. He said, I think the idea of having anyone put any amount of money into elections is a bad idea. He said that. On 60 Minutes, he said, yeah. but as long as... I didn't said, realize but, I agreed with him about anything. Yeah, I know. That was my feeling. That was exactly my feeling. Uh, he said, but as long as it's legal, I'm going to do it. And the <laughs> Yeah, that, that's the Israeli proverb. If I don't steal it, somebody else is going to steal it. Yep, exactly. But, I mean, the, the effect is that, you know, if you, you get a traffic ticket from a county sheriff in... Uh, in Jackson, Mississippi, and you don't like it, you can put a you can put a hundred million dollars into the into the next sheriff's election in Jackson, Mississippi, and elect the person you want. Basically, probably hitman would be but cheaper. But because because of the sheer amount of money that is now legally available, things that were possible in the 1960s and 70s and 80s and 90s and 2000 are not possible now. You know, you might be onto something there, Ellen, and that money can also buy very sophisticated mind control techniques deployed through social media and the Internet that are tailored to individuals after they've been categorized into different kinds of groups who respond to different kinds of signals. You know, the science of mind manipulation and brainwashing has progressed quite a bit, 
and the technology to get to people now through their phones that these, you know, zombie people walk around staring into their little tiny screens all day has, has reached the point that with these billionaires able to throw in as much money as they want to experts in mind control through this kind of, uh, technology that maybe it is possible. May or be rather, maybe it's, it's not possible for someone like RFK Jr. to wake people up. Uh, I don't know. I mean, I'm, I'm not. It, it is. I don't, I don't think it is. It, it's, it's not. No, please understand. I think his message is good. I've looked at his message very carefully, and I think it's a very reasonable message. And in fact, in many cases, it's a revolutionary message. It doesn't have a chance. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What, what and if, that's, so, so, and that, that's just a function. It's a function of money and technology and numbers. Okay. So here, here's another counter argument. And here's a scenario I didn't bring up in the first hour with Ed Curtin. It occurs to me that the parallel between RFK Sr. in 1968, where a deeply unpopular and extremely unlovable uh, president, a sitting president who was expected to run for re-election, who was complicit with the deep state forces that kill Kennedys and do things like that, uh, suddenly is challenged by a, a Kennedy who is determined to assume the presidency and go after the people who killed his elder family members, right? That scenario happened in 68, and it's happening again now, and one of the reasons that this uh, candidacy of Bobby Sr. took off in 68 was that the Vietnam War was going south, and the Great Society spending and the Vietnam spending was creating a huge economic problem, and so an unwinnable war and a big economic crisis looming probably that was the biggest uh, force that drove Johnson out of the race and propelled RFK Sr. into a position where he would have easily won the presidency if they hadn't killed him. Well, now RFK Jr. is doing something similar. He's going against a deeply unpopular, you know, at least equally unlovable uh, sitting president who is presumably running for re-election, even though he is losing a war in Ukraine and that the loss in that war is likely to cause large scale economic problems, probably dwarfing those of 68. Frankly, Alan, I'm seeing the dollar starting to waver and go down right now. And the few dollars I have, which have now been converted into Moroccan real estate, uh, that's probably a good investment because, uh, we could really be in a bad position by 2024 if that long-awaited dollar collapse that's going to be precipitated by the emergence of the multipolar world and the end of dollar hegemony, if that manifests and suddenly the American people's living standard has been cut in half all at once and there's just complete chaos, anything could happen, couldn't it? Well, technically, yes, but I think that's that's almost a bit too academic. I think what we're what we're looking at are, are we going from domestic politics to international politics now? Well, I think they're linked in that as I said, well, course, I, like yeah, like course. Biden is going to be viewed in 2024 as a senile old hack look, look. which he is who just lost a, a really stupid unwinnable war which he's doing just like Johnson in Vietnam and in the midst of an economic crisis that you know could be much worse than 68 almost certainly will be so that's going to make biden really vulnerable and 
I'm not saying that guarantees RFK's victory, uh, but still. If if, if nothing else, the good news is that Ukraine is more NATO's war than it is the U.S. war. We're the principal funder, but so many NATO countries are involved in this. The the U.S. at least has a little bit of the blame to put about. We're throwing in almost all the money, Ellen. when 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 we look at Biden, we are looking at an incestuous, increasingly senile, senile pedophile as our president. And if there was anyone who would be vulnerable, it would be that. You would think. It doesn't matter. Yeah. Yeah. So, so. It just, it just, it just doesn't matter. So the DNC it, could yeah. somehow. If they, First of all, as far as, as far as the media is concerned, and therefore 95% of the American public is concerned, None of those things apply. He is not an incestuous pedophile, although he is. He is not losing a war. And he isn't good. He doesn't fall down steps because he's senile. He does. But it doesn't matter. It's image, not reality. You and I are both talking about reality. As far as the public is concerned, it's image. But that doesn't reality have a way of reasserting itself sometimes that the, the you know, truth starts leaking through things get so extreme that they can't hide the truth anymore. That when you, the Ukraine, you know, war at some point, it becomes obvious that you can't win, whether it's Vietnam or Afghanistan or Ukraine. At some point, it becomes obvious that the economy is falling apart, whether it's you know 1929 or 2008 or what have you. And so this notion that, you know, like Kyle Rove said, we're an empire now and we create our own reality and you reality based community people are going to keep, you know, trying to, you know, just be trying to figure out what we're up to for the rest of eternity. I don't think that's going to go on for the rest of eternity. I think Kyle Rove and his neocon lie masters and, and, you know, Plato's cave projectionists, you know, projecting the, the magic lantern on the wall of the cave to the chained people inside. Yeah, that's, mm-hmm. that scam's going to work for a while. But then reality reasserts itself. I don't think, you know, yeah, Bi- Biden, I think he's probably as bad as you say. And even if he's not, he's almost that bad for sure. Uh, <laughs> and, and they've, you know, they've covered that fact up somewhat to a certain extent, but uh, it just seems to me the combination of all of these things. And then the truth of COVID leaking out, like it's now, you know, the New York times just published a front page article a month ago on, on that new meta study proving that there's just no evidence that masking and mask mandates worked at all. That's showing that from a policy perspective, every effort to put on a mask mandate to stop the spread of COVID was complete lunacy. And that all these kids who are now like three grade levels behind and they, you know, they can hardly talk and they're emotionally stunted and, and on and on and on because of having to cover their faces at the point in development where they need to be just totally emotionally keyed in on everybody's faces. That, you know, this reality is leaking out on the front page of the New York Times now. They can't cover that up. They can't cover up the fact that these jabs were not safe and effective. I don't think they're as bad as, you know, the, oh, everybody's going to die, people think. But the safety and effectiveness equation was not favorable. And that fact is leaking out. They can't hide that. They can't hide the fact they're losing in Ukraine. And they won't be able to hide the fact that their empire has crumbled. And when the dollar collapses and everybody suddenly loses half of their standard of living, I don't think they can hide that stuff and paper it over. I think in, in a, in a, in a, in, in, 
ideal world, you're correct. I recall. <laughs> a, uh, it doesn't have I to recall, be that ideal. I, I recall a conversation with a uh, with a French colleague of mine a few years ago, and he said, "If you're an optimist, you buy Russian war bonds. If you're a pessimist, you buy Chinese war bonds." <laughs> and he said, yeah. "You never buy American." He said, "You know," he said, "I hate to say it." He said, "I've been." a supporter of America, even when it wasn't popular in Gala days. He said, you're done. He said, the only question is who is going to perform the, this is almost a direct quote, who is going to perform the funeral oration? This guy was on the French equivalent of the National Security Council. Wow. Now, what's his name? I'm not going to tell you. Okay. Ah, he's, still gotcha. he's still in government. Wow. Yeah. Well, so, um, that again, that scenario would suggest that again, kind of anything is possible in that, in that kind of chaotic and total final collapse of empire situation. It is a little concerning though, that as he said, okay, the only question left is who's going to perform the funeral oration. That actually means that let's just imagine that somehow RFK Jr. does win, maybe he because – Don't stop. Don't, well, don't, just, don't, just, don't. Just, let, just let me give you a counterfactual. Take it as a counterfactual. Okay. Imagine that enough people, enough of the oligarchs saw that the American empire was totally collapsing and a few of them – through the, what little goodness is left in their hearts, you know, said, well, let's try a long shot on, on truth and justice. But most of them, or another group, a much larger group said, you know, let's, 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 you know, the best way to teach a, jo- a dog to, you know, stop chasing cars is let him catch one. So just as we let Trump, you know, catch the presidency and we got some of the stuff we wanted then, or some of us did, let's let RFK Jr. catch the presidency. And then when, you know, when things really go south, as they will, shortly after he's, you know, gets into office, we can sort of blame him and then, you know, reassert ourselves in a different way. Uh, in other words, if, if the only question is who's going to, you know, to give the funeral speech, then maybe politics as usual is not relevant anymore and that other scenarios might apply. Well, our, you know, look, let's be real. What is RFK Jr.'s power base? Um, basically, the same thing as like any sort of religious revival or, you know, even... Where? You know, but where? Where? Uh, well, right now, actually, his biggest power base would be among COVID skeptics. Where? Uh, Pol- politically, logistically, geographically? Uh, I would guess pretty evenly scattered around around the country louisiana louisiana why louisiana he's a senator in that area where is he a senator from i'm sorry whose power base are we talking about where is rfk jr a senator from certainly uh nowhere least of all louisiana that's right that's the point he has no power base none well, where, even, where was Trump's power base? Uh, New York and the Jewish-dominated New York financial and real estate communities and yeah, Hollywood. Maybe so. maybe so. And the Jewish-dominated Hollywood entertainment communities. He had his, his 
power base was a financial power base. Mm-hmm. RFK Jr. doesn't have that. He well, he has some financial supporters. The People... only the only power base he has is a residual affection that some people might have to the Kennedy name and that's it. And that's not even the Kennedy name. Right. But, but yeah, but, but what we're talking about is that kind of residual affection along with all kinds of uh, inspiration based on noticing the mythic quality Kevin, of, of what's Kevin, happening here, overthrowing the power, power bases. The whole, this is a revolution Kevin, against Kevin, power, power politics and power bases. So, so saying he doesn't have a power base is actually giving him a compliment and noticing an advantage that he has Kevin, in a situation Kevin, where the establishment is, is in, you know, serious Kevin, deep doo-doo because of everything going south at one time, the war, the economy, et cetera, et cetera, not having a power base, not being part of that establishment will be an asset, right, not a liability. Right, You've used the terms going south. Do you know, do you know where that came from? Um, is there like a sort of an obscene uh, or scatological no, reference no, there? No, not it was obscene. Uh, before <laughs> the Civil War, okay. slaves in the northern tier of the Confederacy were told if they didn't behave, they would be sent south. They would go south to the really hard states like Alabama and Mississippi and Louisiana. And to go south. That's right. To be, to go south to really bad slaves. Yeah, I remember that from Mark Twain's uh, Puddinghead Wilson. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, as a Muslim, you're not allowed to drink, right? Uh, yeah, that's, uh, that's well known. Well, if you happen to believe in the RFK Jr. candidacy, I would suggest you start drinking. Well, I thought you were comparing it to smoking something before. Now you're now you're no, comparing it to drinking. I was going to be more casual. <laughs> but I'm, I'm serious. It's you know it's 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 one of these delusions that <clears throat> that uh, it has zero possibility. I mean zero possibility. I wish that's that's not the case. Let me put it like this: Tulsi Gabbard had a better chance of taking the Democrat nomination in 2020 than RFK Jr. does in 2024. And the same thing would happen to him as happened to her. Hmm. So what, what if, uh, what if they ran, uh, as a third party? Uh, third party of what? Well, I mean, he's already, uh, without, I mean, even before announcing he was polling double digits among Democrats and he's got even more support among Republicans because of his anti-vax, quote-unquote, views, his COVID skeptical views, which represent a Kevin, very, very motivated and intense sort of 20, 25% of the population. Kevin, you're acting as if, as if the election is actually going to be real. <laughs> well, I think... I'm, I think serious, it's, I'm serious. No, I'm, I... I'm not, yeah. You know, I, I hate to say... I hate to say God, you know, it hates me in my gut to say this, but there's absolutely no chance in the United States for another honest election, period. Hmm. Well, I better head for the Kingdom of Morocco then. Uh, I will be there with you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, I guess uh, so from your perspective, the American experiment has pretty much run its course. Uh, not entirely. I think there is a there's a residual possibility 
that there can be a violent insurrection and nail these bastards to the wall. And that's what it's going to take. Hmm. But I would think that the same kinds of tools that could be used to suppress and let's say RFK Jr. populist movement uh, working through in part through the electoral system could also be used to suppress any prospective armed uprising. Indeed, it might, they might even be more effective and more motivated against the armed uprising. It would depend on what, what motivated it. Um, and it would depend on the position of the armed forces. Well, what do you think are I mean, the scenarios for example, that I could mean, produce for that? Example, I mean, for example, um, I think that a very good case could be made that the hundreds of prisoners from J6 in the D.C. jail are analogous to America's Bastille. And if someone finally decided, if enough Americans finally got the guts to look at that and say, why are hundreds of our people held there? And they treated the D.C. jail like the French treated the Bastille, that would trigger it. That certainly would be uh, an interesting uh, thought experiment to imagine how that could happen. But I don't know, Alan. I mean, if you if you look at this, you know, the January 6th insurrection, those folks were not really very serious about storming any Bastille. And I'm not sure. So who's left who, who would be? I mean, every since then, it seems like those the, the January 6th crowd has really been beaten into submission, hasn't it? I think it pretty much has. I mean, there's almost a thousand people still in the jail. Uh, and what, what I think that that shows the whole reaction to it demonstrates more than anything else. And that's something that, that, that pains me is that, um, um, Americans are effectively cowards. I mean, they, they like to prance around with AR-15s and bandoliers of ammunition and the rest of that. But when push comes to shove, they're basically cowards. Yep. And I, I, I don't I don't say that with any pleasure. I mean I'm I'm eighty one years old. I did my service in the Marines. I fought in Vietnam, did some nasty things there. But I don't have any delusion about being able to do anything tactical today. I mean, I'm an old man, period. And the young people, the young men and the young women, and it's largely because I think men have been feminized, not feminist, but feminized or demasculated, whichever you wish to call it, is that younger Americans today absolutely have no courage. None. Well, and that's it, why all, that's I, why I agree, all, but see, this is where RFK Jr. stepping into a position where he could conceivably, you know, be in line for another Kennedy assassination. That's a, an inspiring uh, profile and courage for me. So I'm going to talk it up at least, you know, what, whether or not, you know, the realistic political chances look good or bad. I would, I, you know, that's fine. Talking about doesn't matter. But I think in terms of the bulk of the American people, 
Um, they're the only place, can you imagine, the only place there is any courage and any any place to go out and fight is on the left. If conservatives had the same willingness to hit the streets as Antifa and BLM, Antifa and BLM would be gone. That's an interesting observation. The uh, If there's any, any guts around, it's on the left. When I look at those people, they don't look all that gutsy to me, but... Um, I, I kind of get your point there, Alan. It's a very sobering analysis. And anyway, it's great reconnecting with you. And I hope your talk uh, in Lansing, Michigan next Saturday goes well. And I'll stay in touch with you to make sure we get that story straight before we start complaining about how you're being censored and suppressed. All right. Well, thanks, Alan Zabrowski. Uh, take care. God bless. My, my, my pleasure, Kevin. And God bless you. And have a good trip to Morocco. Okay. Bye-bye. Alan Zabrowski, Kevin Barrett here, Truth Jihad Radio, TruthJihad.com, Kevin Barrett, our Substack.com, back next week, same time, same channel, God willing, see you then.